you're listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Today's guest is Karen Grisey from Fried, Frank, Harris, Shriver, and Jacobson. She's been public service counsel at the firm since 1996. We spoke at our offices in Washington, D.C., where she is based. I'm honored to introduce you, Karen. She's an unsung hero of the pro bono community, always available to lend a hand and provide training and mentorship. She's become a highly regarded expert in immigration matters, and she works tirelessly to help other pro bono leaders around the country improve the immigration systems in their communities. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Karen. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. We're just going to jump right in. What were your early years like? So tell us about your background. You mean my early years growing up? Yeah, as far back as you want to go. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Well, I grew up in a working class family without um, a lot in terms of resources. Nobody was going hungry, but there also weren't any luxuries. And um, uh, I would say the biggest premium was placed on education and helping others. Great, that definitely probably inspires why you became a lawyer. So do you want to talk more about that, how you decided to become one, and when? Yes, actually, I had no uh, no intention early on or thought to becoming a lawyer at all. I was actually interested in languages and had thought about studying languages and maybe going in the direction of interpretation. But it happens that I was married when I was very young and had kids when I was very young and uh, wasn't working during those early years. So uh, when my marriage was breaking up, I had to go back to work. The only skills that I had at that point were secretarial, but I knew I could do more than an ordinary level of work, so I had to decide between medical and legal. Um, and I chose legal because I was good with language and vocabulary and not so good with 3D and how things fit together. <laughs> so I decided medicine didn't have much of a future. So I became a legal secretary at that time and then went from there to being a paralegal. And it was after I'd worked as a paralegal for a few years and I was writing briefs and second chairing trials that I decided why should I be doing this work and putting someone else's name on it when I could help my own children. And, you know, three extra years at that point was, I thought, worth it for my own family. Yeah, I was actually a paralegal as well. And you definitely feel like you're doing more than just being a paralegal. You're practicing law almost. I mean, there's more than one way to be a paralegal. I was working at that time in a small agency, um, that was shorthanded and people were allowed to do as much as they could do. So I did my undergrad for 10 years at night. Uh, so at, at that time, it just felt like a little bit of a step forward for a much bigger reward for the family. Yeah, compared to that, two, three years is a right. pretty good investment. <laughs> right. So how did you get to Freed Frank? Um, well, uh, when I was looking for a job for my second year summer, they were, you know, in the process of on-campus recruiting and so forth. And I was lucky enough with my grades and so forth to have a chance at a lot of the top firms that were coming on campus to interview. So really what I was looking for was something in Washington because I wasn't going to move with my family. 
um, and a strong litigation practice because my background was in litigation. And uh, the third thing was a strong pro bono practice. And as I interviewed, those were the three criteria. And what else I found at Freed Frank was that there was much more diversity in the attorney mix that I saw. There were older people, there were second career people, there were ex-military, ex-educators. And so for me, as a 30-plus single parent, not coming from an Ivy League school, I felt like there was the best chance that I could fit in be accepted, do good work, and make progress. Yeah, the culture at the place you work is definitely really important. So your role is public service counsel. How did you become public service counsel? Um, well, I worked for the first five or six years as a, I'll say regular, advisedly. <laughs> I'm not sure if I was regular, but anyway, um, an associate in the litigation department in Freed Frank's Washington office. But from the very beginning, uh, I always... Um, took on as much pro bono as I could because that the mix of the billable work but the pro bono part was very important to me. So over those five or six years, it became known that I was willing to do whatever pro bono work I was asked to do. And then around the time of the legal service funding cutback in, I think it was around 95, that the chief judges of all the courts in D.C. convened this big breakfast meeting and asked law firms to undertake uh, one of three major new commitments. I wasn't involved in that meeting. The firm's management went, but they took the decision to um, join the D.C. Bar pro bono program and do the Wednesday night clinic with six or eight cases a couple of times a year. So they came to me then and asked me to run the clinic, which was recruiting, training, managing, supervising, you know, that whole clinic participation, at which point I said, you know, I'd love to do that. I'm delighted to do it. But with the pro bono load I already have plus that, I don't think we can maintain an expectation that I'll also have a normal billable load. So I asked to restructure the job at that point, and after a few months of conversation, um, they ended up becoming what I think was about the third firm in in D.C. at that time with full-time pro bono counsel. Wow. Third is pretty impressive. So let's talk about an article you published, Pro Bono from the Heart, about your uh-huh. very first Pro Bono yes. case. It was an emotional roller coaster for me when I was reading oh. it. <laughs> it was so good and so inspiring. Can you tell us how you came to represent Mr. B and how that unfolded? Yes, that was uh, his case. And uh, I say theirs because I think of him in conjunction with his wife, although mm. he was the party. He was a veteran in San Angelo, Texas, and the case was assigned to me through the Veterans Pro Bono Consortium when um, our firm signed up to participate in that program when it was when the what was then called the Court of Veterans Appeals was first created um, to serve veterans who were unsuccessful at the Board of Veterans Appeals and needed to go up, but. The invitation to join the program struck me very personally because it came the fall of my very first year on my birthday, and my dad was a veteran who had passed away without needing to call on any of his benefits other than the death benefits. But we grew up with him always saying, I'll never be a burden to anyone. Uncle Sam will take care of me. So this call to respond, to help veterans where Uncle Sam had not taken care of them was really meaningful for me. So I actually thought we would be getting 
Vietnam veterans cases, PTSD cases, but my first few cases, and especially this one, were World War II veterans. And um, Mr. B had been uh, pursuing a claim on his own for service-connected disability benefits for many, many years unsuccessfully. So uh, I took his case and we were able to prevail and he got a, a large lump sum back benefit, but more importantly, a monthly benefit, which really changed his life on a going forward basis. That is, an, it's an amazing story. Um, we're going to put this somewhere on uh, our promotion of this episode so people can find it and read about it as well. So you make some general observations about pro bono in the article that um, are really great. My favorite was, sometimes a case is just a case, but some cases transcend the attorney-client relationship and lead to true long-lasting friendships. Yes. Which is a really nice sentiment. Could you expand more on that or elaborate? Um, Right. And you cannot tell at the beginning which ones those will be. Right. You don't pick your pro bono case because I can really see this person becoming my friend. But this case, the case of the bees that we talked about, um, they won their case and got the lump sum benefit weeks before their 50th wedding anniversary. And they asked if they could buy me a ticket to come to Texas, to come to their party, because they wouldn't have been able to have a party without the money that they received, right? And when I went there, the lady had um, made me a quilt for my bed, if you can imagine this, an embroidered fly swatter. In I guess you need fly swatters in Texas more than <laughs> I was used to needing them. But she had it had a little animal on it, handmade, right? She gave me the quilt, she gave me the fly swatter, and you know some other thing. But more importantly, at the party, they they paid such a great deal of thanks to me, way more than I deserved for making the whole thing possible. But they did become like friends. And actually, the only way I knew he had passed away is when I stopped getting Christmas card. And then I investigated and I found his obituary. But I was in touch with them forever till the, you know, till the time that uh, they passed. Yeah, it's uh, interesting how these cases can kind of have lifelong relationships. Right. And um, their appreciation right. probably feels amazing right. to know that the work you did kind of came out of this I, I, relationship. I think the ones that really lead to friendships are the ones that are long, that are mm-hmm. complicated, where you not only see the client through thick and thin, but they, you, because when you're working together for so many years, you know, your life experiences become, in a sense, intertwined. And a couple of my individual clients came recently to my mom's funeral when she passed away because our families had come to know each other, and that's the way the relationships sometimes work. That's amazing. So now, how do you spend your time? Is there there anything you wish you could be doing more of? Um, Well, in the last uh, 18 months, both of my kids have moved to opposite coasts. One's in Seattle and one's in Maine. Uh, (laughs) So I wish I was spending more time with them, uh, in a sense. And uh, in recent years, I've become interested in birding. So I'm wishing, especially in good weather, for a little bit more time outside. Um, But uh, I'm not wishing that I weren't working, and uh, I'm still very motivated by the direct representation piece in particular. That's great. So you focus your practice on political asylum and other immigration matters. You spoke actually Mm -hmm. at the conference Mm -hmm. about this last year. How did you come to concentrate on that? 
Um, right. That's a good question because I never studied immigration in school. And although in my family growing up, I was very much aware of our uh, Irish background and heritage and the, the immigrant experience that was a couple of generations back, it wasn't um, a focus uh, personally or in my work life until um, somewhere in the mid-90s. I was the uh, liaison from our firm to the uh, Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, and through their uh, asylum project, uh, I was asked if I could find a summer associate to work on a part of an amicus brief to the Fourth Circuit, or not, I guess not a part of a brief, but a brief to the Fourth Circuit. So I thought, oh, that was easy, and I knew one of our summer associates that had had some immigration experience, so I got her to do it. And I learned just enough about asylum law to oversee the drafting of the brief. Summer came and went, the brief got filed, and in October or November, the Fourth Circuit granted oral argument in the case. And then there um, wasn't anyone to do it, and I was asked if I would like to argue the case at the Fourth. And uh, um, I, I was naive enough to not know how complicated that was, but I got ready, um, and I did it, but... Um, the issue in the case was a very narrow uh, one involving the motivation of the persecutors. And I got to the oral argument, and the first question out of the mouth of one of the judges on the panel was, why should we help your client, uh, counsel? Why should we help somebody who butted in line and stole a visa number from someone who was waiting properly in line for his number to come up? It, it was so far beyond the question that the case was about, and it revealed an unfamiliarity with anything about how asylum law fit into the immigration system as a whole, and I had to use my argument time to back up and say, asylum has no numbers, and it doesn't steal numbers from anyone, and it's a completely different system motivated by protection and not by immigration, right? And um, uh, I learned from that that you can't always count on the higher court straightening things out, which was what I thought. I thought they would know more, and at that time, in this particular case, the panel knew less. And um, so I realized the only way to win these cases is to make a good record at the trial court and not be trying to straighten it out on appeal. So from there, I took another case or two, then I started getting appointed to cases, and by accident, it evolved into a specialty. Wow. Oh. Uh, that is impressive. <laughs> so what do you enjoy most about your job? Um, two things. Uh, direct representation, I said already, uh, I like very much. And it's very, it's very important to me to not lose touch with real clients. Um, and the other part is uh, teaching. Teaching those who are truly motivated, who want to learn, who want to help and serve others. Um, I like that a lot, and I do it inside my firm and externally, obviously, through PBI, through the ABA, through the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and right now I'm helping them with their justice campaign. But I've, I've always done a lot of speaking and teaching and anything that's designed um, to help equip lawyers to come in and join, as I did at the very beginning with no training whatsoever, um, to help people in this situation. And the uh, and the other thing is then to use that direct experience to try to do policy work to improve the system. Yeah. I think that um, some lawyers wanting to do pro bono kind of find it daunting. And mm -hmm. uh, it's great that there are people there that 
show this is how to do it, this is how I can help you, this is how I can train you. Because sometimes it only takes just saying, I need help, but I want to get trained in right. something. And, like, you can tackle different kinds of cases you might ne- not necessarily have done before in your everyday practice. Right. And I felt privileged to be able to do it because some some people who work full-time in any of the substantive areas, you know, um, all day, every day to make a living have limited capacity to do pro bono work. Maybe they can only take one or two cases at a time. But I've felt, you know, well-supported and less worried about... Um, that aspect of how I'm going to support myself, right? And I've been, I've felt a responsibility to help others and to use, you know, my time and my experience to bring other people into the into the fold, so to speak. So now we talked about what you most enjoy. What mm-hmm. are your greatest challenges? Um, well, this is kind of funny to say in a PBI podcast, but I don't like doing reports. I don't like doing numbers crunching and hours. Um, uh, I mind less writing uh, copy for marketing describing victories because that has that inspirational capacity, but it's the the real nuts and bolts, housekeeping, number crunching, reporting. Um, I don't enjoy except to the extent that I appreciate that it reflects how we're doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, it has a value, but it's not a task that I consider fun. <laughs> unnecessary evil right. kind of thing. Right. So what have you found works best to incentivize and encourage lawyers at the firm to do pro bono work? I know that can be challenging sometimes. Right. Um, I say that's not a one-size-fits-all thing. And mm-hmm. what I usually say um, in my orientations with new summer associates or associates and the way I, I explain to laterals when they come in is, I approach it in a number of ways. Um, Sometimes people are motivated by a substantive legal area, like the case that you asked me about, the veterans case. I had a personal interest Mm -hmm. in trying to assist veterans, and that, um, that was instrumental into leading me to that type of work. So I'll find that our junior lawyers may be interested in gun control, they may be interested in elder law, they may be interested in gay rights, it doesn't matter to me, um, but if I can get to know them a little and learn what they're interested in, that's one way of offering some, them something that's appealing. Other times it's a skill development um, where they want to learn how to take a deposition or they want client contact or they want a negotiation experience or um, they're told they need to do a significant writing project. And they don't actually care what the case is about as long as they can get that skill that is sort of missing in their portfolio. So some people uh, let me know that, and I look for matters that suit that. And one of our litigation partners a few years ago um, wanted to get Supreme Court experience. So he told me to bring him every single cert petition Um, And he wanted to take as many cert petitions as he could until he got an oral argument. And he ended up getting two and having some nine-nothing victories out of the Rehnquist court. So that was, you know, fun. Um, That's the second way. And then the third way uh, is trying to find out what people don't want to do or are afraid of and find something that satisfies those. So for some people, they don't want to be out of the office during the workday because they're doing transactional work and they need to be on the end of the phone every minute. Some don't want anything that's out of office hours because they have very young children and they need to be home, right, on evenings and weekends. 
Some people say, I don't want anything that has to do with somebody in a black robe. No courtroom, no matter what. Um, uh, some it's no travel. Some, who knows what. But it's that. It's finding out what they don't want to do and avoiding it or getting tools and training enough to remove the obstacle. Taking them to see a proceeding, for example. I, I was able to get somebody to do an uncontested transfer of custody in anticipation of death for uh, a mother that was terminally ill. And to find out you go in and get this accomplished on a proffer, right, where it's actually not court, although it's in the courthouse, but it's uncontested, that got somebody to feel more comfortable about doing that. So that that's my third way of motivating. Yeah, with pro bono, there's such a wide array of cases. I think that you can right. There's just so find the many, so many choices. There's something for everyone to do, mm-hmm. and sort of my job is to help them think more broadly or dispel um, myths or even not myths, but real concerns to come to the thing that will work well for them. So looking back, what have been your biggest surprises as pro bono counsel and what are the lessons you've learned? Um, let's see. So I wouldn't exactly say as surprises, <laughs> but maybe along the way it's emerged as a surprise. You know, I came into the law firm setting and into pro bono work because it's what I wanted to do and I was very motivated to do. And if I didn't have three teenagers at the time that I not three teenagers, two teenagers at the time that I was coming out of law school, but looking to have to pay for college right away, if what I meant to say was three tuitions, right? I had my own student loans and two uh, college bills staring me in the face, I would have been a good candidate for legal services or, uh, you know, something similar if it wasn't for that. So I went in very motivated about the substance of pro bono work and helping people. And um, what I've learned over the course of time basically is two things. Uh, one, what one of our partners told me once is that I have to remember that at bottom, the law firm is a profit-making enterprise. <laughs> Um, which is a shorthand way of saying, you know, everybody can't do everything all pro bono all the time, right? And you have to realize how that fits into the firm's infrastructure, what its role is, to try to help it be as much as it can be, but realize that um, in a way it's a niche and uh, you want to be helping people and um, meeting the needs and expectations of the lawyers, but... um, except for me, it can't take over their practice. (laughs) Um, So uh, that's one thing. And the other thing uh, that I've learned over time is that uh, what the law firm management structure, goals, principles are at the beginning aren't necessarily the same over decades, and that it's important to keep your eye on the way um, business trends change, management changes, committees change, personality changes, and uh, while I'm paying attention to the day-to-day work, it's important to see, uh, you know, what's happening with the interests and the direction of the firm over time as well. Yeah, that's great. Since you've been there since, what, since 1996? Well, I've been there since, since 90, 90, but I've been full-time in the jobs, this job since, since 96. 1996. Yes. So that's over the past couple of decades. Yes. Um, so are there any more specific changes about law firms, law firm pro bono over the past two decades that you've seen? Well, uh, we, I don't know how many years ago now, because we started with the law firm pro bono challenge mm-hmm. at the 3% level. 
Then later we signed on to the principles of the Bar Association of the City of New York, which um, is the same thing on an aggregate. And in in D.C., we follow the D.C. rules of professional responsibility uh, where we have an expectation of 50 hours per lawyer. A few years ago, our firm adopted an expectation that every associate and counsel in the office does a minimum of 20 hours to be eligible for bonus consideration. So I've seen articulated goals and metrics come more and more to the fore than they were at the time I started when it was encouraged, but there were not those number sort of metrics. So that's been one of the changes that I've seen. And the other thing is, I'd say since the 2008, you know, the market changes that happened mm-hmm. at that time and the downsizing in a lot of firms and increase in pressure for billable hours on lawyers, there's much more of an interest in smaller manageable uh, pro bono. And I would say particularly where the transactional lawyers, uh, the corporate lawyers have become a higher representation in our office and litigation a bit smaller. The the need for a different mix of cases and for ones that suit not only the skills but the chunks of time availability, um, that's uh, affected a different difference in our case mix. And uh, so it's not only large-scale litigation matters that we're looking for at this point. Uh, it's great that the firm kind of puts such an importance on pro bono uh, with all those requirements. So what's on the horizon for the firm's pro bono program? What are some new things in the works? Um, the the biggest initiative right now um, is uh, an increased desire for um, partnering with billable clients on pro bono mm-hmm. projects. Our New York office has been doing uh, some of them largely focused on clinics, but not exclusively so. And uh, um, we're looking now, um, not just when they come along, but more affirmatively looking for opportunities to partner with billable clients and trying to actually uh, develop or suggest some of those partnerships so that, uh, again, it's the, the um, deepening of business relationships at the same time as we're trying to do work that satisfies the public interest. Um, but the, those um, one-off or one-day type of opportunities are a good way to involve the corporate lawyers and work side-by-side with our billable clients as well. That's great. So in addition to Mr. and Mrs. B, what are some examples of pro bono cases that have been meaningful to you? Oh, well, um, uh, that's a good example. Another one that I can recall is um, one where we represented a widow of a veteran where the, um, the VA was asserting that she had received a very large overpayment in benefits. Um, they, the VA contended that she had failed to adequately report um, when she had uh, gotten divorced from her second husband and she had uh, received benefits as a widow. Um, and they, she had, however, told her, her service branch, and I don't remember now whether it was the Army or the Air Force or whatever the branch was, she had told her immediate representative, and they noted that in her records, and she had confirmation of that, and some benefit that flowed from them was affected, but her VA widow benefits never terminated, and she did not know 
she did not, from her point of view, hadn't done anything wrong because she had reported and she saw a change, so she thought what she was getting she was entitled to, and although she was not indigent, repaying the amount that was asserted would have um, taken away her only real asset, which was her home, right mm -hmm. when she was facing retirement. She was a school teacher, and it would have divested her of her only asset. So we were able to totally get that forgiven, um, and that was a very good one. And then on the immigration side, I've had a couple of clients where um, there has been long, contentious, very aggressive uh, litigation on behalf of the government to try to remove someone where... Um, I know that the individuals would face death if returned to the home country. Not a risk of persecution or a fear, but a certainty. And um, it's been my pleasure to level the playing field in those cases by being able to um, give a high level of representation with a lot of resources and um, enable those people to stay in the country. And a couple of those not so aggressively litigated have been children but the leveling the playing field is the same. You can imagine that children are unable to adequately represent themselves in removal proceedings, and there's no right to a lawyer mm -hmm. in deportation proceedings. So uh, representing kids and unearthing the facts that help them establish their eligibility for relief and presenting them in a way that an unaccompanied child could never do um, is another example of ones that have been deeply rewarding to me. That's very inspiring. I couldn't imagine how like a person of adult age could do it, let alone a child. So um, it's good that they have people advocating them right. for them, like yourself. And in all of them, and this goes back to you know something that, that I felt for a long time. You do them a service just by being there. You, you know, you hear them, you accompany them. The judges know that if a competent lawyer from a good firm has reviewed a case, taken it on, and is working for free, it la it adds a layer of credibility, mm -hmm. uh, some gravitas to the matter that a pro se person would not enjoy. And you have the opportunity to make, you know, make the case stand out. So I think it increases the likelihood of winning without changing the facts. But the other thing, and this goes back to something that Mr. B told me at the very beginning. At one point, he read the brief and he said, you know, at this point, I don't even care if I win or lose, but I feel like you're the first person that understood what I was saying and believed me. So that made a big difference. You can do a service for the person just to make them feel like they've been heard and believed. And then um, with preparation for the range of possible outcomes, even if it's not what they wanted 100%, and this can happen in a family law case, a custody case, there, there are a lot of things where a person may not get everything they want, but if they understand it, they're empowered to participate, and they know the range of outcomes, they'll be more satisfied and expect, accept the outcome better because they don't just feel like it happened to them. They participated, and mm -hmm. that, I think, is a service. I think that empathy and compassion, that having someone on your side and believing you can um, be just as powerful, like you said, as the outcome of the case. So, in it, if you had a magic wand, <laughs> what one thing would you change about law from pro bono or access to justice? A magic wand. Um, I guess if I had a magic wand, I have to think about this a little bit, but um, to remember the reason we do pro bono work, and 
I can think going back many years ago, probably near 20 years ago, um, PBI actually was instrumental in educating people about the business case for pro bono. Mm -hmm. There was an important article early on, and that was when law firm pro bono was not as well established as it is now, and the points were about how it can help you with recruitment, with retention, with morale, um, with marketing, business development, training, all those good values, right, that can attend a vibrant pro bono program. I guess if I had a magic wand, I would make it so those things were not the driver of pro bono or the Mm -hmm. selection of pro bono cases. I've heard questions like, um, why should I do this case? Why is this the best pro bono case available in Washington, D.C.? You know, the what am I going to get out of it? And I think those are all important considerations, but they shouldn't be first. The first thing should be, I recognize my professional obligation to do pro bono, and the second question is what's going to suit me best. And that's the way I approach it, is helping people, once they have the desire to do some pro bono work motivated by whatever, to help them find something that's going to make it a good experience, but not that it starts with what's a good experience for me. That's, you know, I I look to Rule 6.1 and our ethical responsibility to do it and start there and then figure out what fits. That's a, a very heartfelt and inspiring uh, thought on what you could change. So who is your pro bono role <laughs> model or access to justice role model? I know there um, are probably a few, so you don't have to limit. <laughs> well, there there are quite a few. Um, uh, I'll give you a couple, and they also all in one way or another. It's kind of like Kevin Bacon, right? They all they <laughs> all um, they yeah. all lead back in one way or another to PBI. But um, I'll say that uh, many years ago. Um, I uh, was led by Bob Jusium, who uh, was at that time an active litigation partner in our New York office um, and always very active in the pro bono world and uh, uh, on the PBI board, encouraged me to go to the law firm pro bono conference um, in Washington, D.C., Uh, when I was either thinking of or just had moved into this pro bono leadership role. I I don't remember exactly. But he said, go there and you'll meet great people and you'll learn a lot about pro bono and you'll get a lot to read and you can think about it. Um, And there I met John Pickering uh, from, you know, what was at the time Wilmer Cutler and Pickering. Mm -hmm. And John also was a giant in the pro bono world. And John led me, I guess it was before I came into this job, because uh, John was encouraging me to pursue the work on a full-time basis and coming out of that, um, the tradition that I was just speaking of, of doing it because it was the right thing to do. And he always encouraged me throughout my career. And John led me to a conference in Asheville, I think, where I first connected with Esther, And, uh, you know, on and on it went. So um, the convergence of those three um, individuals have always provided me with a great deal of support. But in the firm and um, in the ABA, in AILA, in the pro bono community writ large, uh, I would have to um, identify Bob Jusium as the brightest light for me um, because he has uh, not tolerated but encouraged my bent towards pro bono service, both in direct rep and in um, 
systemic reform and policy advocacy, and he's uh, showed me how to do it and how to uh, navigate in the law firm setting and in um, with a va- various uh, legal service providers and in large national organizations. So he's been a beacon for me from you know, small to large. He always is telling the poem about the lamplighter, and I can't think of that without thinking of him because he's been the lamplighter for me. That is a great sentiment. So Karen, thank you so much for talking with me today. Is there anything else you want to add before we uh, sign off? I think you've pretty much covered it. <laughs> I think you've pretty much covered it. The only thing I would add is if people want to follow up on anything or ask me any more about any of the things I've touched on or would like to get connected uh, with any resources, immigration-wise or otherwise, I'm available to anyone. But I don't think there's anything else that, uh, that I need to add at the moment. Great. It's been a pleasure talking today. It's been very inspiring. Thank you very much for having me. New and archive episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It is quick and easy to do. We would appreciate the feedback and would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org.